0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alexander Bronfman. My guest today is Jennifer Palmer, the author of Intimate Bonds, Family and Slavery in the French Atlantic. This is a book that begins and ends really in the household and uses the intimate relationships that are created there to make arguments about the making of race, slavery, and the... Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Jennifer Palmer, the author of Intimate Bonds, Family and Slavery in the French Atlantic. This is a book that begins and ends, really, in the household and uses the intimate relationships that are created there to make arguments about the making of race, slavery, and the role of the law in the 18th century French Atlantic. It's a really fascinating set of stories, and I'm so pleased to be speaking with her this morning. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for talking to me this morning.
1: Hi, Alejandra. I'm so happy to be here with you and be available to discuss my book.
0: Yeah, so uh, I really enjoyed reading this book, and um, I guess I want to just start out by talking a little bit about how you framed it. Um, It's a book about slavery, but it's really different from a lot of books about slavery in that it makes central... Really, the intimate connections among slave owners and enslaved people and not just necessarily sexual liaisons, although there are some of those, um, which I hope we'll get to a little bit later, Um, but all kinds of relationships. Right. So I'm wondering just how you came to the the question of intimacy as the main um, sort of object of study in this in this book.
1: Well, I really came to this issue of intimacy through the sources. And so I really followed the people who I was studying. And that's what led me to this question. And so I started out this project by researching people of color in France, especially slaves in France. And um, as I was researching, I started with, I guess what we might term official records. There were some laws that regulated slavery in France over the course of the 18th century, and um, one of the effects of these laws were that they required owners to document slaves. And so when owners read, uh, brought slaves to France, they were required to register those slaves with the Admiralty. And so there's a record of some slaves who entered. Um, I also looked at other sources that were kept uh, by, by official bodies in the old regime, including church records, baptisms, especially baptism records, but also marriage records and death records. And then a third official source was people of color, um, uh, surveys of people of color. And so two times in 1763 and 1777, there were surveys of people of color, all people of color, not just slaves. So I started with these sources, but as I got into these sources, I really wanted to know more, and I wanted to know more about the relationships between slaves and owners, And sometimes these sources, especially the surveys, would give little hints. The baptism records also gave little hints, but um, I turned then to family papers of families I already knew were slave-owning families, and these really allowed me to get further into the relationships between slaves and owners. And in turn, that led me to the question of intimacy. Um, and so it was really the sources that led me to frame the
0: book this way. Yeah, and I was, um, I was really interested in the way that you used law. And I, and I thought that um, just having that law and having people of color be forced to register already just produces this incredible source. And I want to talk about, a little bit about that later on. Um, but, but perhaps also we can take a minute just to talk about the temporal and the spatial frame so it dwells mostly in the mid to late 18th century. Is that right? And people flow across the Atlantic from Africa to La Rochelle to Port-au-Prince or Léogane. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you chose, how you came to this kind of temp- time uh, framing and also the places that you, that you chose to write about.
1: Well, this was an 18th century project from the inception, but... Again, the sources really led me to the time and the place. Um, and so by training, I'm not a Caribbean or an Atlantic historian or a historian of slavery. My training is in the history of 18th century France. And so as a grad student, I read works on absolutist monarchy and the bourgeoisie, the French Revolution, mm-hmm. um, and also, you know, a healthy side helping of women's history and family history. <laughs> Um, But when I started my research, and I started looking specifically for slaves in France, I still was conceptualizing this as a French project, I found that the people I was interested in were were had a much wider frame of reference, and that they really were thinking in a transatlantic way, and the place that they were really relating to and really thinking about and really making connections with was seminary. Um, and so I started to do that, too. And so as I started following slaves and owners, it really broadened my own geographic frame from France, and specifically La Rochelle, um, to include Domingue, especially the Western province, and then to some extent Africa as well, um, thinking about slaves as they were brought from Africa to the Caribbean or to France. Um temporally, I would say, I also followed my sources. And the earliest case studies are generally in the 1720s or thereabout. Um, and then the very latest sources are from, you know, the French Revolution. Um, and so there are two reasons for this early frame. And one is the law about slavery. The first law was in 1716. Um, and so that is that's what really created the sources that's what really created the source base Um, but also this is when Saint-Domingue was starting to really kick off in terms of sugar production and started to really be an economic focus of the French empire and so that's when merchants started to really be interested in Saint-Domingue and so the people I was studying in La Rochelle were turning their attention across the Caribbean at about that time too
0: um, yeah, that's perfect. So, um, the two, the book then focuses in on these two families and you draw out a number of arguments about, like you say, slavery and law and race and gender. And I want to get into the details of them later. And, and before we dive into that, I, I wondered if we could just take a minute and introduce these two families because they're really extraordinary and pretty complicated. <laughs> So, could you just walk us through the two main families that you that you write about in this book?
1: I would be happy to. And so, first, let me introduce you to the Flahillio family, the Flahillio Mandrón family. Um, and this is a really interesting family. The patriarch of the family is a man named Aimé Benjamin Flahillio, and he was a young man who really had to make his own way in the world. Uh, he was the son of a bankrupt sugar refiner. He had lots of older siblings, he was the youngest, and so it was pretty clear that if he wanted to make anything of himself, he was on his own. Um, and so he turned his sights across the Atlantic to Sermon, and he arrived there in the late 1720s. He wasn't the first in his family to go, he had an uncle who was already established as a plantation owner. And so this was a typical kind of connection where uncles and nephews, uh, or you know, sometimes cousins, but where male relations, who were sometimes collateral relations, would help each other and would provide kind of a start for each other across the Atlantic and across generational lines. Um, And so, Bobbio arrived in the in the late 1720s, and he started as an overseer on his uncle's plantation, and he worked his way to owning a large and profitable plantation himself. He spent about 25 years in Saint-Domingue, and while there, he had a sexual liaison with a woman named Jean-Diet Gimbelot, who it seems at one point had been one of his slaves. Um, We don't really know much about her, and we don't know how she viewed their relationship, but we do know that she had two choices. Um, She was freed. By the time their second child was born, they had eight children together over the course of about 10 years, um, and she might have been freed when the, free when the first child was born, it's unclear, but she was definitely freed by the time the second child was born. Um, and Flokio did provide for her and provide for these children, but it was not clear that he would continue to do that if she ended their relationship, and so in a, a small, rather out-of-the-way, rural village where they lived. It's just not clear what choices she had. Um, so, Flumio acknowledged all of these eight children at their baptisms, and he declared that they were born free. Those are his words that are recorded in the baptism register. And this is really significant. Um, and it's important, obviously, for the children, but... It also shows that Florio was familiar with colonial norms. Um, it wasn't uncommon that white fathers would acknowledge and provide for their mixed-race children, and sometimes it was even expected that they do this. Um, this becomes really important once he arrives back in La Rochelle, where that norm really wasn't in place. Um, and so this, this juncture reveals that there's a... a, a the fissure, really, between understandings of race in the French Atlantic world, in France versus in the Caribbean. Um, and so the baptism, Florio really worked to give these children a network and to weave them into their community. And he named neighboring planters and merchants and their wives, the godparents of his children. And so the point here is that as children of a wealthy planter, they would have had options in some manner. He seemed like he was willing to provide for them. Uh, his sons could have expected to go into the military or to learn a skilled trade, to work on plantations themselves, or become landowners and slaveholders, which some of them eventually did. His daughters could have expected to marry well. Often, possibly, they could have married white men. Uh, and so in Semenang, Florida would have known that status would override race, that wealthy people of mixed race were often not labeled with racial terms in colonial records. And they might not be able to reach the very upper echelons of society in Semenang, but there was a wealthy, uh, very well-to-do group of free people of color who his children could expect to join, to be part of. But everything changed when Florio returned to France in 1755 after about 25 years in the colony. Uh, he was 46 years old at this point, and he really was one of those who achieved the colonial dream. He went back to his hometown of La Rochelle, one of the wealthiest men in town. Um, he quickly married uh, into a wealthy merchant family. His, his wife, his new wife, was half his age, uh, and then he had three legitimate children. But when he came, he didn't come alone. He brought five of his mixed-race children with him. And for them, once they arrived in La Rochelle, everything changed. They had no clear place in society. The daughters never married. Um, the sons did eventually return to La Rochelle, but the daughters... Or they returned to Sondamon, but the daughters remained with Rojo La Rochelle. And their... Um, there, the difference in status that they experienced, I think, became particularly obvious in 1762 when the Admiralty Ordinance in 1762 required a survey of all people of color. And so they were included in this survey, and for the first time they were classified alongside slaves. And so this really speaks, I think, to uh, the change in status that they experienced and also the differing expectations about race, different understandings of race, in France versus in 179.
0: Yeah, I have lots of questions about that family, um, and hopefully we'll we'll talk about those a little bit later, but then maybe you can also introduce the second family, which is um, quite different, actually.
1: Yeah, and so the second family is the Regno de Beaumont family. Uh, and Monsieur and Madame Regno de Beaumont, as they were to become, um, married in 1735, and both of them came from very well-to-do backgrounds. Uh, she brought a large dowry to the marriage. He also brought a uh, uh, large expectations. And in particular, she had the expectation of inheriting a plantation in feminine. And so this in and of itself would have made her a very attractive marriage prospect. Even their marriage was interesting. Um, their marriage contract—it was—it it was common for people in La Rochelle to make marriage contracts, and in saint also, it was common for people of all social statuses to to make marriage contracts. Um, but theirs was interesting because it really negotiated a line between the common law of La Rochelle and the common law of saint which was under the Couture de Paris. Um, and these two traditions were different in terms of, uh, their, the amount of control they allowed a testator, uh, what they mandated for inheritance, and, uh, what they mandated for widows, uh, what, what widows could expect upon their husband's death. Um, and so when they married, their contract Said that it was going to abide by the Coutume de Paris, which was in effect in Saint-Domingue, uh, but it really specified that they would proceed according to the traditions of La Rochelle. And so, what this meant in practice is that if uh, Monsieur Jean, uh, his name is Jean Severin, if he predeceased his wife, Marie-Madeleine, She would have an immense amount of control over his estate and she would get to decide if she would renounce the estate, which would protect her as a widow from any debts he incurred, if she would um, immediately pass the estate on her children, or if she would continue managing the estate by herself. Uh, There were reasons why she might do this. It was not unheard of for widows to manage transatlantic business advisors. Um, and she also had experience in this. Her mother was also a widow and she seemed to be managing the plantation in Saint-Domingue and negotiating for products to be sent to La Rochelle. And so this was an example that marie Madeleine had. Um, so they, the couple had a number of children. jean Severin was the ship's captain, and so soon after several of their children were born, he left, uh, and he was intermittently gone, gone um, on, these, on these journeys. But after just a few years of marriage, he went to Saint-Domingue to run a plantation and never returned to France. Um, and so Marie Madeleine Reynaud de Beaumont is left in France with her children, managing the family business from that side of the ocean while he is in seven running a plantation and sending products to her, mostly indigo to her to sell. Um, and so she encountered difficulties doing this in spite of her husband leaving her his power of attorney. And this power of attorney offered her really sweeping powers of a level that was fairly uh, unusual in the old regime, where she had basically power to make contracts, power to do everything her husband would have done in his name and in his stead. Um, And this was unusual for women, except for widows, to have this kind of power and authority. But she had it as a wife. But it turned out she had trouble exercising it. Not because of her, but because of the people she was negotiating with, the people she was dealing with. She had trouble collecting debts, she had trouble enforcing contracts, uh, and she had to, in the end, hire an attorney in Bordeaux to do this for her. And so her gender proved to be a barrier uh, because expectations, especially about transatlantic trade, were that it was a very masculine affair. Um, and so generally the people she were dealing she was dealing with were men and it just proved in the end very difficult for her to do what she needed to do to to effectively run this family business. Um, in the meantime her husband as was the custom in Centon formed another family with a woman of color apparently a free woman of color with whom he had two daughters. Um, and so this leads to a really interesting situation where the assumption in marriage in general is that the husband and the wife are both working towards a common goal, and that is um, improving the lot of the family, uh, accruing assets for the benefit of the family and the benefit of their mutual children. But because of their long separation and because their lives really diverged, they didn't even really seem to correspond. Um, it turned out that Monsieur and Madame Regnaud de Beaumont were actually working towards very different goals. Um, and he really seemed to have the interests of his family and son at heart, mm-hmm. while she was working for her own benefit and the benefit of her children, but assuming that her husband was doing the same. And so when Jean-Server Regnaud de Beaumont died, he effectively left his entire estate to his two mixed-race daughters, um, according to the law, he wasn't allowed to do this outright, uh, and according to his marriage contract, he had to leave his estate to his legitimate children. Um, but he managed to work around that by leaving them an annuity that amounted to the entire value of his estate. And so it came as a real surprise to his wife, uh, first of all, that he had this family that seemed to uh, be news to her. And also, that there was so little money left. Um, and so, for the rest of her life, and then also her children, worked to try to, uh, to extract benefits from this estate, but without much success. Um, and even 20 years later, the children are still pursuing lawsuits that are trying to help them recover their father's property. But it seems like, in effect, he was successful. At reconstituting a family that was, that included him, but also um, a mixed race woman and two, or a woman of color and their two mixed race daughters.
0: So, one of the things that's so fascinating about this book is that um, you use all of these things are in play all the time, right? Race and gender and slavery and Um, the law, they're all kind of in play and they all sort of inflect on each other in different ways and have different kinds of outcomes. I find that really, really fascinating. And so, for instance, um, this notion of with this family that you just described, the the way that the contract acts kind of in a way to undermine whiteness and the family, right? We are so used to thinking about law as something that upholds the family and upholds whiteness and here you introduce this Example of the contract that really does kind of pull those things apart. And I, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, so maybe we can um, talk about the law for just a minute. Um, and um, I found it really striking that in a lot of cases, you found that the laws that were intended to ban slavery um, or um, institutions that were often seen to be mitigating slavery, like manumission and godparentage and those kinds of things especially laws intended to ban slavery on French soil, actually legitimized it and actually strengthened it, right? Um, That was a really fascinating finding to me, because in some ways it really runs against a lot of the literature, which in which the claim is that, well, France is this kind of free soil and any, any enslaved person who landed in France was automatically free. At least that's the some of the literature that I'm more familiar with. So I thought that was really an important argument. And so maybe um, if you could just give one example of how that works and how um, just one way in which the law, which is sort of intended to ban slavery, just actually does the opposite
1: Sure. Um, And I think that one really interesting case is the case of baptism. Mm -hmm. And so the laws that enabled slave owners to bring slaves to France, starting in 1718, said that there were only three reasons that owners could legitimately bring slaves to France. And that was to be baptized for religious training, to learn about religion, or to learn a trade. And um, so... The law about the, the exception for baptism as a way to legitimately bring slaves to France is unusual because, in theory, all slaves should already have been baptized. Um, any slaves who were born in the Caribbean should have been baptized there. And even slaves who were originally captured and brought from Africa were supposed to be baptized on slave ships. And so, in theory, all slaves should have been baptized before they reached France. In practice, I found that virtually without exception, slave owners baptized their slaves once they arrived. Um, And I found one thing that's really interesting is that they often named themselves their slaves' godparents. And so for them to make connections that were aspirational social connections for their children. But when it came to the baptism of slaves... By naming themselves their slaves godparents, owners were actually closing off possibilities outside their own household. And so there were several instances in France where slaves turned to godparents for help pursuing legal cases against their owners, pursuing freedom suits, um, and were successful in getting their own freedom. And so this shows that the godparent, that godparents in the Catholic Church in general had the potential to be powerful allies to slaves, but by naming themselves the godparents, owners effectively foreclosed this possibility. And so this is one way in which owners are using laws to their own advantage in a way that extends their own authority and legitimates their own authority over their slaves.
0: That's really fascinating. And I guess I have, I'm um, wondering about a, a kind of the equal and opposite example, which also has to do with law, but also kind of the social uses. And this other family, the Fleuriot and and the ones that you talked about first with the five mixed-race children, and the two white children, they all end up in France. Um, and I, no- I noticed that you looked a lot and paid a lot of attention to the way that they use names. In fact, there's a whole chapter devoted names and naming and the way that the mixed race children occasionally and very strategically took on the name Florio, which was the the last name of their father, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it it seems like just just that method, paying attention to names, is really fruitful. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you came to that method and when you sort of realized that that was a a very important strategy that people were using.
1: Well, it's striking in this family because they do sometimes use Flavio and sometimes mandrel, So sometimes they use and sometimes both. And so they really hover, they oscillate between mm-hmm. these three versions of their name. Um, and so I started to just wonder why and think about why. And this mm-hmm. is I think particularly interesting and important because there are by the 1770s laws that say that children of color cannot take their father's, their white father's name. And so there are prohibitions on naming. Uh, and then also in the context of the Haitian revolution, there's a tendency for people of color to reject their white forebearers' names. And this family doesn't do that. Uh, and so in two instances, they really are going against prevailing trends um and so i started thinking about when and where and what opportunities they had to take their father's name and why they might do that and Flavio never ascribed his own name to these mixed race children at least um and he never actually acknowledged them in official records that i found after their baptism um and so he always refers to them as Mendel. But the children themselves, at different times and when there are different opportunities, use Flavio Mantral, use both the names, or sometimes, and increasingly, actually, just Flavio. And so they seem to be then weaving themselves into their father's family story and into their father's family, and really. Defining what the family is from within and on their own terms. And the person who particularly does this is his daughter, Jeanne, uh, as she's known, now, Jeanne. Um, and so she, she claims her father's name first upon the death of her sister. Um, where she is the only family member who seems to be there, and so she tells the priest what her sister's name is, and she says that her, her name is mendoz Um, The brothers back in Saint-Domingue also increasingly do this, and so really in concert and together on both sides of the ocean, the sister and Marichelle and the brothers in Saint-Domingue are really reframing their own family story to to include their white father.
0: So in some ways this runs against um, the the legal and kind of racial question that seems to arise at this moment with the ordinance of 1762, right? Which required people of color to register. So here you have these mixed race children who are using their father, their white father's name, but they're also, they've just been required to register. Um, and I guess my, that's a really interesting kind of moment there. And, I'm wondering about this ordinance, um, and I wonder what, do you have a sense of what the criteria were for deciding who was of color and who wasn't? Because I guess, um, it, you know, was it more like the sort of the, the what we think of as the Anglo rule, the one drop rule, or was it more about status, like you find in the Hispanic world, or something in between? I I um, I, uh, I haven't encountered this very often, and I'm very curious as to what, how people defined of color at at that time
1: well so in the context of France it is absolutely unclear Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's one of the interesting things about this most of the people who registered or were registered in these two surveys the first in 1762 and the second in 1777 um, most of them were slaves Uh, and so in these cases their owners went and registered them you know they registered for their slaves. Uh, there were free people of color. Most of the free people of color were fairly low status. Uh, so by that I mean they had been slaves. They often were economically on the margins working as servants or as day laborers. And many of these people did not claim to be mixed race. So they identified themselves as negva, uh not as latva. Um And so there in general, not mixed race. There were a few people who identified as mixed race, uh, but many of them probably would have been known as having been slaves and would have been known as as people of color, as mixed race. Um The Florida children are exceptional, and there are a few other exceptions, too, um, because they are such a high social status. Um, and in this case, it seems like their father really went of his own volition to register them, but with a dual purpose. Maybe on the one hand, he felt like he needed to comply with this new law, but on the other hand, he seems to be trying to take the opportunity not to um, frame his children as people of color, but rather to frame them as exceptional. Um, and so he really goes to great lengths in this declaration to talk about how his children are different from slaves. He had a slave with him, too, a manservant by the name of Hardy. Mm -hmm. And his declaration of Hardy really is boilerplate. It follows all the other declarations. But his declaration of his children is very long, and it's very different from the others. And um, he talks about what his sons are doing, how they're training to be goldsmiths. And so this is a very high-status trade um, that by the 1770s free people of color and men were actually prohibited from exercising uh, it requires extreme skill, it requires a lot of training, it requires working with precious metals um, and by ascribing a trade to them in the first place he really is trying to I think um, make a claim about their masculinity and about their status as men and particularly as French men his daughters, he takes a different tack and emphasizes instead their femininity in ways that is really aligned with European expectations about femininity, not with uh, expectations about slave women. And so he talks about uh, the delicate health of his daughter Charlotte, for example, and says that if she is to be sent back to men, then clearly her health will suffer and she will deteriorate. Um, and so he's really drawing on discourses about how the tropical air is not good for European constitutions, especially for European women. Um, he also says that his daughter, Jeanne, is necessary to, it has, she has to remain in La Rochelle too, because um, she's the only one who can care for her sister. And so again, he's drawing on uh, tropes about uh, femininity and... Uh, payer giving um, in ways that are legitimating his daughter's presence in France. And so this law and his his complying with it, he seems to be walking a line between following the law on the one hand, but also really making an effort to make sure the presence of his children is legitimated in France and is safeguarded in France. Um, and he's doing this in a way that
0: is unusual. It's so interesting because on the one hand, this rate, this law, sorry, really seems to be a moment where you can actually pinpoint the production of racial categories, right? Like, so suddenly all these people of color have to declare that they're people of color. But then at the same time, as you say, um, gender roles and gender expectations are really using, he's really using those and, and notions of intimacy in the family to trump that kind of hierarchization. It's super super fascinating, and what an incredible source.
1: Yeah, it's a fabulous source. Well, and the other thing that makes me think that this apparent uh, solidification of racial categories is actually not as solid as it seems at have planned, is that people hover, they continue to hover, um, in between categories. And so, there are some people, for example, who were in La Rochelle in 1762, but who do not appear on that survey, even though they appear on the later survey, and vice versa. There are people who uh, are on the 1762 survey, and then I sometimes have evidence that they were still there in 1777, but they're not on that survey. And so, um, race itself seems to continue to be subjective. Um, And it seems that people of color sometimes exerted some uh, agency over whether or not they were listed on those surveys. Um, There's one example of a man who is a man of color, and he talks about his history, and he also says he has a son, a son with a white woman. Um, but the son does not appear on the registry of people of color. And so um, he seems to be encouraging the person who is writing down this declaration not to include the son. Um, and so he seems to be shifting the categories, maybe not for himself, but then for his child.
0: Mm. So all these really on-the-ground examples of how, you know, people talk about the fluidity of race, but these are really very concrete examples where you can actually witness that um in the making, um, and I thought that that actually it leads up to uh, what your arguments are about the Haitian revolution, right? Because um, it, it, there's this idea in the epilogue um, that the conflicts and the politics of the revolution actually do produce and do solidify some some of those categories that are very fluid prior. Um, and I just thought that was very striking because a lot of the accounts of the revolution begin with pretty solid categories, right? There's the enslaved people, there's the free people of color, and there are whites, and there's sort of different sectors within those. But those are kind of, um, seem to be in place by the time of the revolution. And you're ar- actually arguing that, no, that's that's not the case at all. Am I getting that right? <laughs> yes,
1: yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, you're getting that right. So just as
0: a way of maybe wrapping that up, maybe you can just walk us through that argument a little bit or talk about the bigger implications that you thought uh, that that argument is making.
1: Sure. And so uh, in this epilogue, I picked up the case of a plantation that I talked about earlier in the book, the Bay Long Plantation. Um, and this is a very interesting and well-documented plantation where... Um, so, yes, in the epilogue, I do suggest that going into the Haitian Revolution, uh, race is still an unstable category, and that is really drawing on a lot of the rest of the book, where I think about race as something that's negotiated on an individual basis, and that continues to be true, I think, in the Haitian Revolution, especially at the beginning. Um, and so looking at the letters from the Baylon Plantation, the letters particularly of the agent and feminists, back to the heirs to the plantation in France, in Um, Rochelle. The agent going into the revolution is thinking about people of color, slaves, and free people of color, really on an individual basis, I think. And as people of color, free people of color, and then slaves become accepted as political agents and political actors he then starts to see these categories as large, almost monolithic categories where personal relationships aren't as important. And this shift, I think, really is complete as whites increasingly are seeing Senna, this agent himself goes to Baltimore. Uh, and so without the basis of personal knowledge and personal relationships, without that intimacy, um, these categories, I think, uh as racial categories really become more and more monolithic.
0: Yeah, it's it's a super um fascinating argument that you make there. And you know, this is such a rich book. There's so many tiny but really interesting stories. There's all these really interesting people. There's all these really um rich analytical moments. Um, but I've taken up so much of your time already. Is there anything, one last thing that you'd like to mention about the book or, um, or point out as, as something significant that, you, that we haven't gotten to?
1: Well, maybe just one final word on mm-hmm. intimacy. Um, and it's so interesting because by immersing myself in the papers of these slave-owning families, I got really quite intimate with these families, and I learned things about them that even their closest neighbors might not know. I mean, I knew their exact net worth. I knew about their anxieties, about their social position. I knew who they loved and who they considered members of their families, like Mm -hmm. Flavio, and who they associated with on a daily basis. And um, almost always in these families, one of the things that distinguished these people was their familiarity with slavery. And so I came to realize that one of the things that really set French women and men with colonial connections apart from their contemporaries was that they saw race differently from a lot of people who didn't have that colonial experience and those colonial connections. Mm. And I think that this stands to reason because the family and the household were such important institutions in the daily lives in 18th century France. And so, if people had daily, uh, interactions and daily, um, connections with people of different races, they would see race differently, and they would see people of color differently, and also see slave and free status differently. And, um, so, I think that this is actually still an important point, um, that it's important to have these daily intimate quotidian interactions with people who are different because it really allows us to understand difference and understand people who come from different backgrounds and different places uh, in a more personal way. Um, and so that's the point that I'll conclude with.
0: Thank you. And I think that that is a wonderful point to kick move with. It really resonates with some of the things I'm sure everybody is thinking about these days. Um, this is such a, an important book for historians of France, for historians of the Caribbean, for historians of the Atlantic world, and I'm just really uh, delighted to have gotten this opportunity to talk to you today. So thanks.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it.